So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations. And this the 27th of March. It's the fourth Sunday of Lent. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present the programme again this morning. Shane Ambrose, good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Very good. Thanks a lot, Shane. Of course, this time of the year in this part of the world, uh, we, we're getting some sunshine. We're getting a little bit of um, spring, and it's beautiful to see all those Beautiful bits of creation out there, little bits, little buds just starting to force their way through and the trees and lovely colours of the daffodils and all the other bits of nature around the place. Beautiful city. Beautiful to witness. Well, it's just to remind people, of course, that uh, you'd be listening to this on Sunday. So I, in, in this part of the world, the clocks went forward last night. Oh, yes. Uh, so, you know, that's part of it, too. The reason why Shane reminds me of that now is because we are recording this midweek, you see, and I sometimes forget to, to, to these little things would have happened. But anyway, welcome. No matter what part of the world, whatever time zone you're in, you're very welcome. And thanks indeed for joining us. Thanks indeed, especially for those who are housebound. And we always remember that people who are housebound and lonely and struggling in some way today. And our listeners, of course, who support us each week on prayer. Our programme uh, does include uh, faith topics, uh, chats on maybe the Sunday Gospel, always the Sunday Gospel, of course, and some inspirational music. All of our podcasts can be heard at comeandseeinspirations.buzzsprout.com. Just Google Come and See Inspirations and you'll find us there. Also on our blog, historical programmes going back to 2009, and sacredspace102.blogspot.com. We're on Spotify, iTunes, and Facebook, our Facebook page, Come and See Inspirations. And thanks thanks again to those listeners who do like us on Facebook. I know some, some listeners um, do click into our Facebook post, which is just a post of today's program. Also, if you want to contact us, and please do, on 087-6088-667. That's 87 6088 or email inspirations at gmail.com. Now we pass over to Shane, who will introduce some saints for the week and maybe a few more little notices. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, so before I jump into the saints of the week, John, obviously, as it is the Lenten season, um, we kind of saints take a slight downward trajectory in terms of importance liturgically. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking at today, of course, is the fourth Sunday of Lent. It is Latare Sunday. For those of us praying the Psalter, it's week four. Now, Latari Sunday is the, sec- the, the second Sunday of the year where sometimes priests will use kind of rose vestments and it's to kind of indicate that we're approaching towards the end of the penitential season, the penitential season of Lent. Now, in terms of, before I jump into the saints, as I said, they're kind of slightly downgraded for the Lenten season. Just, of course, on Friday, of course, the 25th, we had, of course, the uh, event in Rome where Pope Francis uh, re-consecrated or renewed the consecration of Russia and the Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Very much, of course, associated with the devotion to Fatima and the request of Our Lady of Fatima that Russia would be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. Uh, the Russians, particularly the Russian Orthodox, they don't like it. No. <laughs> Something we'll pick, up, we'll pick up upon in part two of the program. Um, obviously, they, they don't really want the you know, Catholics consecrating their country to Mary. But anyway, uh, but it's been done a couple of times, actually, John. It's, been, right. in it's been done in 1952. It's been done in 42 by Pius the, the 12th. 
In 52, Pius XII issued an apostolic letter entrusting the Russian people to the intercession of Mary. In, it was done in 1964 by Paul VI. John Paul II did it a couple of times, of course. The most well-known was in 1984, uh, where the letter, where the, he did it in, I think he did it in Rome, and he invited the bishops of the world to join him. And I think there was a clandestine bishop or priest walking around Red Square at the time that it was being done in Rome, uh, saying the prayer as well in 1984. Oh. And he, he did it. Now, obviously, there's a whole load of conspiracy theories about it and whether it was done properly or not. But at the time, because of its connection with Fatima, uh, Sister Lucia, who, of course, is was the third seer of Fatima, confirmed she believed Our Lady's request had mm. been. Mm. So why, is Pope, why did Pope Francis do it on Friday? So consecration is setting something aside. Uh, and, you know, we can always renew a consecration, which is what Pope Francis did. And it's, you know, in one sense... You don't have to believe it. You know, the, 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 the events of Fatima are not, uh, they're defined as private revelation by the church. You don't have to believe Our Lady appeared to Fatima to be a good Catholic. Let's be very clear about that. But the church has given its approval to what happened and its belief that it took place. So, you know, it's a, the prayers around the consecration. It's not a concession that anything was done insufficiently in 1984, um, but it's more a case of renewing our prayer through the intercession of Mary's Immaculate Heart, peace in the world, and particularly in Russia and Ukraine. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. And if people are looking for a good explanation or a good reflection or a good explainer on it, highly recommend our new go-to piece online. It's called The Pillar. And there's an explainer there about the consecration, which is of good information. Now, in terms of the Celestial Guides, John, and the Liturgical Odds and Ends for the week mm-hmm. coming up, Monday the 28th of March is the feast on the Irish calendar of Blessed Nolan O'Donnell, O'Neillan, I think so you pronounce it. He's one of the Irish martyrs. He was a Franciscan priest and martyr, and he died, he was executed in 1580 on 28th of March in York, <laughs> Cork. So he's one of those 20, mar- he was one of those Irish martyrs that was beatified by John Paul II in 1992. We've mentioned him a few times on the programme. We don't know a whole lot about him except that he was a Franciscan priest and that he was a martyr. Then on Tuesday the 29th, we are travelling all the way to the Holy Land and we're going back to the 1195. And we're talking about Blessed Berthold Mount Carmel. He was a crusader, fought in the Crusades and was in Antioch during a siege by the Saracens. Uh, he gave up the military life and became a hermit on Mount Carmel, following uh, and joining a number of other hermits that were in the area, and which gave that community gave inspiration to the founding of the Carmelite Order. The Carmelites traced their foundation back to these hermits on, on um, just outside uh, Haifa. Uh, is 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 the place that's associated with them. So he died in 11, 1195. So that's Blessed Berthold of Mount Carmel. Then on Wednesday the 30th, we have Saint Irene of Rome. Now, Irene is a saint. She's associated with the early church. And in particular, she's actually associated very much with Saint Sebastian. Now, Sebastian, you might remember, when we talk about Sebastian's feast day, the 20th of January, I would have said to people, Sebastian is depicted as the man pickled with arrows, tied up against a tree and absolutely full of arrows like a porcupine. So 
the um, the the Saint Irene is remembered as the woman that tried to help deal with his wounds and encourage him to leave. Survived, uh, but uh, she wasn't. She didn't convince him, and he. So, uh, but she's she's that's her feast on the thirtieth of March. So, thirty-first of March is the feast of Saint, or sorry, Blessed uh, Christopher Robinson. He's one of the English martyrs, the martyrs of Douay, the martyrs of England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, he was ordained in 1592. He returned in September 1592 to England. Uh, he witnessed the martyrdom of St. John Boste, and he was arrested in March 1597 for the crime of being a priest. That was what he was convicted of. He was martyred for his crime. Now, interestingly, they tried to hang him in Carlisle in England. Is it Carlisle? Yeah, Carlisle is pronounced. And uh, they tried to hang him twice, and the rope broke. So on the third attempt, they put two ropes around the man's neck, so they, they were definitely going to martyr him. So he's one of the martyrs of England, Scotland, and Wales, and he was beatified in 1987 by Pope II. Uh, then on Friday, the 1st of April, All Fool's Day, as it's sometimes known, just to remind people, of course, it's the first Friday of April, so it's the first Friday devotion for those that maintain their devotion. Um, and it is the feast day of St. Mary of Egypt. Uh, now, St. Mary of Egypt is an interesting one. She is a saint I came across in the iconography of the Eastern Church. Generally very ascetic, very thin and gaunt, very wild hair and nothing else. Now, she's an interesting backstory. Uh, she, and it's a, so just to bear with you now, she's celebrated across many of the Eastern churches. She's a, she's a, she was seen as a beautiful spoiled, disenchanted, rich child who ran away from her family at the age of 12. And she ended up in Alexandria in Egypt. And she ended up basically taking up the oldest profession in the world. So uh, she was there for 17 years. And then at the age of 30, she took ship and sailed off on pilgrimage to Palestine, paying uh, for her way by applying her trade in the oldest profession in the world. Uh, she arrived in Jerusalem and uh, she was there for a while. And then one of the big feast days came up, which is the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. And she followed the crowds to try and enter the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre. And she could not pass the front door. She was some force stopped her passing the front door. And she was overcome with remorse. And she repented and asked for Our Lady's guidance. And a voice told her to find rest. She had to cross the Jordan. So she crossed the river and wandered out into the desert and lived as the life of a hermit in the desert for 50 years. Uh, I read a smart comment that that was making up. She was resting after her previous exertions. But, um, she lived on herbs and berries and whatever came to hand. And she met St. Zosimus of Palestine. And she told him to come back a year later. And when he returned to bring her Holy Communion, he found that she had died. And he, he, he dug her, her grave and buried her. So she's an interesting saint. The iconography around her, she died in 421 in the desert near the River Jordan, natural causes. And I just, it's an interesting one. It's always the iconography of St. Mary of Egypt is what catches my eye. It's very, it's very abrupt. It's, she's, it, the paintings, the imagery of her is very, um, it's, it's an interesting one. So that's St. Mary of Egypt on the 1st of April. Then on the 2nd of April, we have the feast day of St. Francis of Paula. Born in Calabria in 1416, he was a hermit and attracted others 
to the way of life and called the Order of Menines. And he died at Tours in France in 1507. So Saturday, the 2nd of April, obviously that's the first Saturday of the month. And as we have the reference to the consecration of Mary's Immaculate Heart, to remind people, of course, there is that devotion or that request for Our Lady of Fatima for the first for five consecutive first Saturdays for reception of communion, prayer of the rosary and confession as well for those that are doing that devotion. Now, John, as it's also next week is the start of the month, so it's the start of April. So the prayer intention for the Holy Father for the month of April. We pray for the healthcare workers who serve the sick and the elderly, especially in the poorest countries. May they be adequately supported by governments and local communities. So that's the prayer intention from Pope Francis for the month of April. So just a few little notices uh, here, as we usually do here on the part one of our podcast. Um, first of all, going back to meditation, for those who like meditation, myself would be included in that. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, our good friend Noreen Lynch at the FCJ Spirituality House um, has organised 11am for 30 minutes, Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you're interested, give Noreen a ring on 87 or email info at fcjspiritualityhouse.ie. Uh, the Redemptist in Limerick Mount St. Alphonsus, they uh, continue to conduct their Lenten mission. That's after the 7.15 evening Mass each Wednesday. Uh, the list of preachers are Father Lawrence Gallagher, Father Derek Meskell and Father Jerry Maloney. The mission can be heard back on, uh, can be heard online at novena.ie. Now, just before we go for our piece of music, there's a little prayer. Uh, sorry, just one more little notice there, just uh, just to bring to listeners' attention. Um, at 5 p.m. this evening in St. John's Cathedral in Limerick, there is a, a ceremony of Stations of the Cross. Uh, Bishop, our own Bishop Brendan Leahy uh, is inviting people to join this um, presentation of Let There Be Peace. So the idea is to pray the Stations of the Cross for the people of Ukraine and Russia. That's 5 p.m. this evening, Irish time. You can log in to www.limerickcathedral.com. That's limerickcathedral.com. Or St. John's Cathedral, you might get it as well. And that's on, uh, t- today at 5 p.m., Stations of the Cross. Just before we go for, again for our final for our first bit of music, there is a prayer that we'd like to share with our listeners, and this is for the peoples of Ukraine and Russia. Holy and gracious God, we pray for the people of U- Ukraine and the people of Russia for their countries and their leaders. We pray for all those who are afraid that your everlasting arms hold them in this time of great fear. We pray for those who have the power over life and death, that they will choose for all people life, and life in all its fullness. We pray for those who choose war, that they will remember that you direct your people to turn our swords into plowshares and seek peace. We pray for the leaders on the world stage, that that they are inspired by the wisdom and courage of Christ. Above all, Lord, today we pray for the peace for Ukraine. And we ask this in the name of your blessed Son. Amen. So we go for our first bit of music. And Shane, you you picked a nice little piece of music there today, uh, a Ukrainian um, hymn. 
Can yeah, I thought it was a nice reflective piece. And we're going to be uh, we're going to be talking about the Ukraine in part two of the program. So I thought it was a nice way to enter into it. So it's a Kyrie, um, so it's a, a you know from the from the mass, the Kyrie, the Lord of Mercy. And actually, it is a recording made in Latvia, I think, but it's a Ukrainian. And it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece. I would say to people, very, very reflective, very different to what we'd be used to in terms of, of singing and chant. Uh, so just to just to just a nice reflective piece for the day time. Mm. back to part two of Come and See Inspirations today, which is the 27th of March. My name is Shane Ambrose. I'm delighted to welcome you back to this part of the program. So um, part two this week, we are going to do something a little different. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to have, a, I'm going to go through a kind of a piece of giving the religious background to the conflict in the Ukraine. It's an area which isn't getting much coverage in this part of the world unless you are following specific, you know, religiously orientated websites and news outlets. But it is a component which forms a, a, a quite a, an important part in terms of the Russian justification for what they're trying to do. And to try and bring about peace, one must also must always strive to understand where the other person is coming so that you can see where 
compromises and agreement can be reached to bring peace to the situation. Because ultimately, all wars have to end in some peace agreement. Now, as with anything online to do with the Ukraine and the Ukraine war at this moment in time, we have to put in the timestamp caveat. So today is, we are recording this on Wednesday, the 23rd of March. It will go out broadcast on our podcast page on the 27th of March. Obviously, of course, things, given the situation in Ukraine, things can change quite quick, quite abruptly. Um, but just for, you know, facts and things can change after events. But that's where we're working from at this moment in time, a timestamp. Right, John. So in terms of what we're talking about, I suppose what caught my eye and what, why I suggested to John that we would cover this particular topic is a headline that was on the Religious News Service and said, Putin is after more than land. He wants the religious soul of Ukraine. And I thought it was an interesting headline, caught my eye. And when you start reading into it, you know, there's a certain underlying rationale to that headline, what people are trying to say and what it is that perhaps some elements in Russia are trying to do. So if we go back to the start and we're talking about Ukraine from a Christian point of view, what are we talking about? Ukraine, of course, is the second largest country in Europe, population of 44 million people. And it's very much defined by its location. Even the name Ukraine in some definitions is is a word meaning borderland between East and West. Uh, from a historical point of view, from a Christian history point of view, um, it was the seat of the Kievan Rus. That was the duchy, that was the principality that was there. And the history, it forms a very key part in the history of that part of the world. The history of Kievan Rus uh, influences the history of the Ukraine, Belarusia, and Russia itself. Uh, in 988, its ruler, Prince Vladimir, or Volodymyr, as, as, as the Ukrainians would call him, he accepted and became a Christian. And it's an important date, 988, because that's seen as kind of very much the date of his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, it was defined as, it's, it's seen as being very um, key in history in that part of the world. Um, he's the, the Prince Vladimir, his emissaries, emissaries even, had travelled to Constantinople to learn about the faith and famously are said to have reported to him when they got back that when they witnessed the Byzantine liturgy being celebrated in the cathedral in Constantinople, that it was so beautiful that we no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth. And the year of Vladimir's baptism in 988 is commonly cited as the year when Christianity was established in the lands that are now the Ukraine and Russia. So when we look at the Ukraine today and we talk about the different denominations that are there, I suppose from our point of view, we would break it into two groups. So there are Catholic Christians and then there are the Orthodox Christians. So if we go to the Catholic Christians first, there are three different uh, groupings of Catholic Christians. Now, I suppose one thing which we have raised on the, on the podcast before is that when we're talking about um, the Catholic Church, in an Irish context or in a UK context or in an American context, we often call ourselves Roman Catholics. But that is only one part of the Catholic Church. There are actually 24 different churches which make up the Catholic Church. And the unifying factor is the communion with the successor of St. Peter. 
for the majority of Irish people and, and, and Roman Catholics, we are technically what's called Latin Rite Catholics. We are Latin Catholics. That's how we're defined. Our liturgies, our rites, our way of celebrating our faith, our way of understanding and governing our ecclesial communities and our church is defined by tradition coming from the Sea of Rome. So hence the term Latin. But you have 23 other churches of equal right, of equal importance within the Catholic Church who celebrate their rites and liturgies and their governments in a different structure. And some of those are Byzantine, some of them which is coming from Constantinople, some of them are Syriac, coming from Syriac, Syriac part of the world. Uh, some are coming from the Alexandrian tradition, which is associated with Alexandria in Egypt. All of them have different ways that they celebrate their liturgies, that they're governed in different ways, that they communicate with their diaspora around the world in different ways. But for those that call themselves Catholic, they are in communion with the See of St. Peter. Uh, so that's, that's what they are. And in the case for the Ukraine, there are actually two of these churches. One is called the, uh, the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And the other one is called the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church. Now, Greek in this sense has nothing to do with being from Greece. It actually just refers to the liturgies they use, the Byzantine liturgies. The Byzantine is also the term that sometimes uses Greek liturgies. So that's, that's what that means. So in, from a Ukrainian point of view, there are three Catholic churches. There are the dioceses that we would call Latin Rite, and they are mainly people that would have been of Polish extraction. Okay, You have the Rutanian church, which is to the south of Ukraine, and that's its own distinct community, very much associated with uh, Hungary, because at that part, and over the years, Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, ruled that part of Ukraine. Um, if I was to associate it with people, I would say to you, if you artist Andy Warhol, famous American artist, um, oh, he's, he's seen in some, in, in broader society, he's regarded as iconic, a uh, gay icon in some parts of the world. But from an artistic point of view, you think paintings of the cans of Campbell's soup are the famous pictures of uh, Marilyn Monroe in four different squares on a canvas. He's from Pittsburgh, and very interesting life. I, I visited the museum dedicated to him and the gallery dedicated to him there, but he was, he is associated, he's Rutanian. He was Rutanian Catholic to the day he died, uh, and very, a very devout one actually as well. But the, the church I want to, I'm, the other church I want to focus on, or I'm going to focus on, is the UK, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is an interesting church in itself. It's the largest Greek Catholic church in the world. It's a church of martyrs. It's a church of the catacombs in the Ukraine. And it has a large, a large influence in Ukraine society because it was seen as being very much a church associated preserving and maintaining Ukrainian culture and tradition and language. And a lot, and it has had, an, uh, members of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church have been very much involved in Ukrainian identity, a bit like ourselves from, in Ireland when we had our own Gaelic revival in the 1890s and 1900s, uh, that kind of thing as, as well. So that's, then on the other side, you have Orthodox churches, and there are two principal Orthodox churches in Ukraine. 
So I'll come to those in a minute because those are the important ones from a Russian point of view. But just in terms of the Greek Catholics, uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, it's a population of about 3.25 million, predominantly in Western Ukraine. Um, and very much, I suppose, its history is bound up with, 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 with the Orthodox Church. So when we had the Great Schism in 1054, so that's when there was the divide between the Latin Church of the West and the Orthodox Church of the East. Um, the church in, in Ukraine, they went with the East. You know, that makes sense. They were, they were an Orthodox community. But in 1596, um, Western Ukraine was ruled by Poland. And at that time, a number of the bishops in that part of the world uh, entered into union with Rome again. So they, they, they came back into communion with the Pope. And that's an important day. So they maintained their own liturgy as Greek or Byzantine, but they were in communion with the see of St. Peter. And so since then, we've had the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And it's an important from a Ukrainian point of view. Uh, the Russian Church really does not like it because it's seen as impinging on their canonical territory. Again. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, they, the church very much, as I said, was a source of unity and the national cause for the Ukraine. Um, and then it's gone under huge uh, persecution. So when it was set up in 1596, it was in what was lands that were controlled by the Poles. Then it was divided up between Imperial Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then after the First World War, it was taken over by the Soviets. Then the Germans invaded. Then the Soviets took it back. Then it was part of the USSR. So, you know, Ukraine has had a very mixed history in terms of people that have been in part of the to say the least. But, you know, and they have suffered as, as people have suffered. You know, like one of the things that we don't often hear about um, in the West is the suffering of Ukrainian people under Joseph Stalin, in particular in the mid-1930s. Up to five to six million Ukrainians starved to death uh, during what is called the Holdemar, which is, in an Irish context, the easiest, the easiest analogy or comparison I can make for Irish people is, it's the Ukrainian equivalent of the Great Famine. So it was, at the time, the Soviets were trying to introduce collectivization onto the huge farms of the Ukraine, which was obviously being opposed by many of the farmers there. And Stalin basically came down like a ton of bricks and destroyed the communities and starved them in submission. So that was that was that was in the mid-30s that happened. And then, of course, then you had the war between 1939 and 1945, uh, where you had the Soviets in, invaded, then the Germans invaded, and the Soviets kicked the Germans out of the Ukraine and wrecked havoc. It distorted the entire population, it kicked out people of Polish extraction, it decimated the community. But from the point of view of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, what happened in 1946 is that the Soviets orchestrated the elimination of the church. There was a synod, a so-called synod of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which took place and which voted, in inverted commas, to rejoin the Russian Orthodox Church. So voted itself out of existence. And so that was when the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church took to the catacombs. So you had people that just went along with us because they wanted to be able to celebrate their liturgies, obviously under Soviet oppression. And you had people that were underground 
And it was, you know, it continued to function very much in its diaspora, in the exile for many years under the leadership of a very famous man called Yosef Slipyev. He was released from prison by the Soviets in 1963 and he was exiled to Rome. So there's a, there's a, there's a particular connection between the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the city of Rome. And if you're ever actually in Rome, there is a synagogue church down near the catacombs, down near the, not the catacombs, the Colosseum. It's just off the Colosseum. So it's very near for the Irish College, for anyone that's, that's visiting Rome. And there's, there's a, there, if you were looking for reasonably cheap accommodation, actually, in Rome, there's a religious sisters that run a convent that does B&B in that part of the world. But they're Ukrainian sisters. Uh, but there was a great connection between uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Greek Catholic Church, and Rome because their leadership was in exile in Rome. Obviously, the church continued under the ground in the Ukraine, uh, particularly the babushkas. The, ma- the mothers and the grandmothers maintained the faith for the Greek, for the Ukrainian Greek Catholics. Um, very much focus on what was then the domestic church. The way it was described was people took the church back into their homes, back into their families, and took responsibility for it. Because otherwise, the clergies were sent off to the gulags, they were exiled to Siberia. Um, and the other interesting one is they listened to the liturgies on Vatican radios, which I thought was an interesting point, John, because there was a report the other day how they were saying the BBC World Service has resurrected its shortwave service. Uh, in a world where we're so used to the internet, sometimes we have to remind ourselves the internet doesn't work in every part of the world and you must take up older forms of technology. And Vatican Radio has never turned off its shortwave service around the world, which I thought, which I thought was quite interesting. So the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, it had this huge renewal in 1989 and 1990 after the fall of communism. And it wasn't an easy process coming back out of the catacombs because obviously they were taking back their churches, which, you know, Russian Orthodox communities had been using. So there was a lot of difficulty there, but it has come back into place and it has a very important part uh, in, in the life of Ukraine to the present time. And I would say to people, if you want to have a look at, look at it, you should look at the Vatican website or Google YouTube for a man called Major Archbishop Shovchek. He is the leader of the Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And for the first two, two and a half weeks of the conflict of war in Ukraine, he was giving daily video reports, reflections uh, from Kiev, Kiev. Um, Online now there are there are translations. It is translated. There's captions on screen for people. You know those reflections themselves would give you lexio for Lent is what I would say to people if you were to look them up. Um, obviously, you know it's a, it's not perfect. There's nothing perfect about any particular church, but it's a church of the catacombs, and it's a very important church in terms of our relationships with the Eastern Orthodox, uh, and that's something I'll come back to. In- then on the other side, John, we're looking at the, or the Russian Orthodox Church and its role in the conflict in Ukraine. And unfortunately, uh, the current patriarch of uh, Moscow and all Rus, to give him his full title, is Patriarch Kirill. And unfortunately, I read a very good description of him the other day. The, tradi- the, the accusation that's always been made about some of the Orthodox churches is that it can be very nationalistic. They're often defined by the borders of countries, and they're sometimes 
coming from their history in the Byzantine Empire, there's sometimes very much a close relationship between the alternate, between church and state. Not like how we'd understand it as separate entities. Sometimes they're very interlinked in Orthodox countries and in Orthodox history. And uh, there was very much a, a description today of Patriarch Kirill. Instead of challenging um, President Putin, I saw someone, one, I saw one person describe him as Putin's altar boy or the parish priest to the new czar of the Russias. And it's a very, very damning indictment of the man. But unfortunately, there's an element of truth to it. Because one of the problems with the conflict and the war in the Ukraine is the Patriarch Kirill has not condemned it. In fact, he has given his blessing to what has happened, including giving a religious icon of the Madonna to the Minister of Defense in support of Russian troops. He hasn't condemned this. He hasn't condemned the atrocities. In fact, he has defended it. And he's defended it on the basis, on this basis that himself and Putin have put forward, that the Ukraine is the birthplace of Christianity in that part of the world, which is to be defined as Russian. And therefore, you have this whole concept of what is called Ruski Mir, which is this political, religious, nationalistic ideology where basically anything to the East should adhere to what comes from Moscow. There's no recognition for the independence of the Ukraine or Belarusia. There's no recognition for plurality in faith and churches. And it's very much seen as kind of defining the Russian world covering what was basically the Soviet Union and the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. And it's kind of defined as Russia must regain the territory of the empire and monopoly power over souls must belong to the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. But it's, 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 it's a sad one in one sense, because obviously as a man of the cloth, as, you know, he's, he's a bishop, he's a priest, he's a priest of Christ, you would hope and think that a man like him would be advocating for peace and trying to, you know, restrain the worst excesses of it. Unfortunately, that's not quite the case. And there's been a number of homilies, a number of speeches he has given where he has pretty much come out and defended what President Putin is doing. Now, it's interesting. In Ukraine itself, the Orthodox community is divided. You have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is an independent church. It was granted its independence in 2019 by the Declaration of Thomas, or independence from the Patriarch of Constantinople. And that is the main Orthodox Church that is in. But you also have a Ukrainian church, an Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which is still loyal to the Russian Patriarch. So it's still loyal to Kirill. But that loyalty is now being tested. And it's interesting, one of their bishops, Metropolitan Onyev, he came out and he's the head of that particular church in Ukraine. And he came out the other day and he said, the Ukrainian and Russian peoples came out of the Dnieper baptismal font. That's the baptismal font of Prince Vladimir in 988. And the war between these people is a repetition of the sin of Cain, who killed his own brother out of envy. Such a war has no justification either with God or with men. That's an important statement because this is the man that is Patriarch Kirill's representative in Ukraine. And he's come out and he's basically said to his boss, this isn't on, this isn't good enough, and you should be defending all of us 
who remember you in the divine liturgy. So it's just, it's an important thing to understand, I suppose, for people just to be aware of that there is a religious overtone to what is happening. Um, obviously, for many people, the response from the Holy See has been a bit hard to understand as well in all of this. It took a while for the Vatican to come out and to explicitly condemn the war, to even use the term war. But that, I suppose, in defense of the Holy See and in defense of Pope Francis, the position of the Holy See has always to be that of a mediator. And that's the role that they're trying to offer. They're trying to remain there as a source of mediation, as an advocacy for peace. The Pope has condemned, the, has, con has strongly condemned what's going on and has called it a madness. Uh, you know, so it's just, you know, some people had wondered why, why there was a degree of silence to a certain extent, but they're trying to work things in the background as the Holy See, it does. That's, that's what it does. It, do, it tries to mediate. It tries to have a base of mediation and offering itself as uh, a, a conciliator in conflict situations. It's an important one, I suppose, as well, because this war, I suppose, is very much going to challenge our understanding of the Orthodox community. Up to now, very much, the Russian Orthodox Church has been the big bear in the room, John. It's very much been kind of flexing its muscle. It has been a church of the largest, it's the largest Orthodox church in the world. Uh, it's the lar largest Orthodox community. It also happens to be the wealthiest Orthodox community. And it was trying to kind of push that influence around. So the question will now arise after the actions or lack of actions of patriarch Kirill, where and how the standing of the Russian Orthodox Church will stand in the world, the visions that are now there in the Orthodox community. But as we kind of think about it and we pray for it and realize sometimes how religion can be wrapped around like a banner around forces, you know, we have to remind ourselves that whether we're Catholic or Orthodox or whatever denomination we are, we are all baptized, baptized followers of the Prince of Peace. And ultimately, that is what we should all be striving for in terms of peace. Um, there has been a debate whether, you know, the Ukrainians defending themselves meets the conditions for what's called a just war. I think in most cases, everyone would agree that the right to defend yourself and particularly under the UN Charter meets the conditions of a just war. But of, of obviously, we all pray for peace. The implications of a war on Europe again after so many years of, since the, the last uh, fratricide between Europeans in Bosnia in the 1990s, we thought we hadn't seen this like again. And it challenges us on so many levels. It's going to challenge Christianity in the Ukraine, a country of many mosaic parts uh, as, we've, as we're learning, as we're learning more and more. And from a Christianity, Christian point of view, you know, it has many parts to it as well. Um, we pray, of course, for all concerned, in particular as Catholics. We pray for our fellow Catholics in the Ukrainian Greek Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Church. Uh, but also we pray for all Ukrainians who are suffering at this time, John, I think is the fair, fair way to say. It's a challenging time. At the same time, it should also be said, I suppose, in defense of the Orthodox Church, Many priests, many bishops in Ukraine, many theologians in the world have come out and condemned this Ruski Mir ideology, which Patriarch Kirill has embraced. So it's an important thing to remember that when we're talking about this conflict, we're talking about the leadership of 
Russia. We're not talking about Russian people in general. And that is something that we should remember. Yeah, that's a fair point. Thanks for that, Shane. Shane, just before we finish off this, um, a few questions. Yeah. The Byzantine liturgy, when was that introduced? Was that introduced before the break with the Orthodox? And was that always there or what's the story? So Byzantine liturgy is the term that's used to describe the liturgies of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So it would have existed before um, the, break, the break in 1054. So Byzantine liturgies, you have Antioch, you have, you have the, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is the most famous one. Um, you have the Belkites, you so many. Like I said, there's 23 different varieties of the family. Um, but Byzantine is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overarching term that's used for all of those different liturgies. But they would have been there before 1054, John. But yeah. as, yeah. Last one. You mentioned um, someone from um, a bishop, I think, Archbishop from Kiev, who was given daily reflections. And I think they were, um, he was given those through Vatican Radio. At some stage, you might be able to give us his name again. So it's yeah. So he's oh, major. Yeah, he's major Archbishop Shuvchuk. Now I'm not going to spell it, John. What I would say to people is, if you go on to Vatican News, you will see it because they were putting up the YouTube clips and they were providing the translation. So Vatican News is your best place to find it. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's very. He was one of the youngest uh, bishops appointed to head his church. Um, the Greek, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has been asking Rome for many, many years to make him a patriarch, um, which would be the traditional title associated with church like that. Um, so we'll wait and see. At the moment, they're called Major Archbishop. That was invented for them in the 1960s by Pope Paul VI. Um, and they're, you know, it's, 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 it's an important thing for them as a faith community that they're, they're recognized and their independence is given to them. They're an interesting community. Um, they they straddle they 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 straddle that that place that space between east and west. And one of the things uh, which Pope John Paul II often prayed for was that the church needed to breed with both its lungs. And when Pope John Paul II was talking about things like that, he was talking about east and west, or the Latin Church and the Orthodox Church working and praying together. So, you know, the Unionite, the, the Greek Orthodox, the, the Ukrainian Greek Orthodox Church is a very important bridge from that point of view. Okay, Shane, thanks a lot for that. So at this point in the program, we had hoped to have Father Seamus Enright, the rector of the Mount St. Alphonsus Redemptus Monastery in Limerick, join us. But unfortunately, Father Seamus, um, just at the last minute, uh, took to the bed with, with a heavy cold and... Um, Unfortunately, couldn't join us. But Father Seamus um, did tell me that the Redemptists are indeed working in a variety of roles in a variety of cities and, and, and towns in various parts of Ukraine. They're close to the Polish border. They're in North Ukraine, close to the Russian and Belarusian border. Um, they are also involved close to the Moldovan border. Various supports have been offered. I know, for, uh, I just heard recently that they actually um, bought a generator for a hospital that was in need of it. Uh, and that cost 50,000 euros, just to give some idea. So, Father Seamus produced a YouTube recently. It's only about a minute. And we thought it would be good uh, to share that with our listeners today. 
and maybe if they can can offer some support, I'm sure Father Seamus would and the redemptive community would be appreciative of the same. So we can now listen to Father Seamus uh, making this appeal on YouTube. I'm Seamus Unrat. I'm speaking to you from the Redemptorist Church in Limerick. I'm standing beside an image of Blessed Nicholas Chernetsky. Nicholas Chernetsky was a Ukrainian Redemptorist bishop. He celebrated Mass in this church in 1932 and afterwards spent many, many years in the concentration camps in the Gulag in Siberia. The picture reminds us of the suffering of the Ukrainian people. We've launched an appeal for Ukraine to help the Ukrainian Redemptorists, to help the victims of war, the refugees, the displaced people. If you'd like to support us, please go to our website, novena.ie, and you'll find our donate button there. Every cent you donate, every cent will go to the Redemptorists in Ukraine to help them to help the victims of this awful war. Thank you. So that was Father Father Seamus. Thanks again, uh, Father Father Seamus, for for allowing us to just to play that on YouTube. And and uh, we will, of course, invite Father Seamus back again at some other time to chat with us a bit more about the work the Redemptists are coordinating and helping uh, for their colleagues there in Ukraine. But in the meantime, we'll go out with um, a second piece of music. And again, this is a music uh, sharing a Ukrainian hymn that we actually played two weeks ago. Um, it's entitled The Sorrowful Mother. Yeah, it's a very traditional, I understand now, you know, it's the way we're talking is where myself and John are experts in the Ukraine, but like everybody else, we're learning as we go. Uh, my understanding is this is a very traditional Lenten piece uh, sung during Lent in the Ukraine. And I suppose the closest analogy I could give to people uh, in Ireland or elsewhere is it's almost like a Ukrainian version of the Stabat Mater. That's a very poor analogy, a very poor comparison, but it gives you an idea of the beauty of the, the hymn itself. If you can find it online, and there's quite a number of videos of it online, and they generally all have transcriptions of the, of the, of the words, and it's, it's a beautiful piece for reflection. So join us again in part three of our podcast, where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel.
So welcome back again to the third part of our podcast here on Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley and a big thank you again to Shane for sharing that information with us. I suppose it's very important for us these days to kind of get some background as to, from, from a faith point of view, what we're speaking about with the people who are suffering in Ukraine. Thanks for that, Shane. And don't forget, listeners, if you want to listen back to it again, come and see inspirations.buzzbread.com. We're on Spotify. Just Google Come and See Inspirations or you get us on Facebook. Come and see inspirations. But in the meantime, we'll now continue on with our podcast, and this is where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel. Before that, we'll ask Shane to pray this prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it, and that our eyes be closed and our minds wander. May we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. So the Gospel for today, for the fourth Sunday of Lent, is taken from the, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 1 to 3, and 11 to 32. The tax collectors and sinners were all seeking the company of Jesus to hear what he had to say. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. This man, they said, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Let me have the share of the estate that would come to me. So the father divided the property between them. A few days later, the, so- the younger son got together everything that he had and left for a, decent- for a distant country where he squandered his money on a life of debauchery. When he spent it all, that country experienced a severe famine, and now he began to feel the pinch. So he hired himself out to one of the local inhabitants who put him on his farm to feed the pigs. And he would willingly have filled his belly with the husks the pigs were eaten, but no one offered him anything. Then he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's paid servants have more food than they want? And here am I dying of hunger. I will leave this place and go to my father and say, Father... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your paid servants. So he left the place and went back to his father. So while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. He ran to the boy, clasped him in his arms, and kissed him tenderly. Then he said that then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the calf we've been fattening and kill it. We're going to have a feast, a celebration, because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now the elder son was out in the fields and on his way back, As he drew near the house, he could hear music and dancing. Calling one of the servants, he asked what it was all about. Your brother has come, 
replied the servant. And your father has killed the calf we had fattened, because he has got him back safe and sound. He was angry then and refused to go in, and his father came out to plead with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've slaved for you and never once disobeyed your orders. Yet you never offered me as much as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. But for this son of yours, when he comes back after swallowing up your property, he and his women, you kill the calf we have been fattening. The father said, My son, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. But it's only right that we should celebrate and rejoice. Because your brother here was dead and had come back to life. He was lost and is found. That's the Gospel, Shane, for this week, uh, taken from Luke chapter 15. Any thoughts you might want to share with us, Shane? Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's in one sense, this week's gospel is a gospel that you could get very easily into from the point of view of you or I talking about it, John, um, because it's a very familiar gospel. But by its very familiarity, it's also very difficult because we know the story. We know the parable. We know it inside out. And sometimes that familiarity can lower or lessen our awareness, our attentiveness. And one of the things which we often talk about on the podcast is, and in particular in this part of the podcast, is Lexia Divina is very much dialoguing with the word of God. It's not just a text that was written 2,000 years ago. It's something which we believe as people of faith that still speaks to, us, speaks to us in the present time. And it requires us to be attentive, to be prayerful, to be discerning, and to try not to bring our own ideas and ideologies to what is being presented to us. But the other side of that, of course, is sometimes familiarity can breed contempt as well. So that's that's be careful of. There are many things, I suppose, that that struck that could strike you about this. But for me, I think there's there's two things, there's two elements that have been that have stayed with me with reflecting on this during the week. And one of the things is the fact that sometimes. The story or the parable is it's called the prodigal son, right? you know, and the focus is on the boys. But for me, it should really probably more be called the parable of the prodigal father. Because the parable is about the mercy and love of God and how it's presented. Jesus has presented it to challenge the bureaucracy and the fundamentalism of the scribes and the Pharisees that were challenging him. And he's presenting us with this wonderful parable to bring across the bottomless, unfathomable, unconquerable love that God has for each one of us. And we very much focus, I suppose, on the younger boy, the prodigal son, the, the original gun that took off and took his father's money and disappeared and 
and squandered it on him and his women. I love the way that, that the older brother gets that little dig in. You know, it's like the rest of us, we're told it's a, law, a, life, a life of debauchery. Uh, but you know, it's him that says, oh, it's him and his women. You're kind of going, all right. You know? But if you think about it, the younger son was in a form of slavery. He was in a form of slavery in terms of the life that he was leading and then ended up in a form of slavery looking after pigs. But from a Jewish point of view, that was beyond the pale. You know, looking after pigs, you were outside the community. You were cast adrift because obviously in the, in the book of Leviticus and in the Judaic law, pigs are unclean, you know. But the other side of it is the older boy was just as much a slave. And he declares that himself. You know, I look at all these years, I have slaved for you and never once disobeyed your orders and you never offered me so much as a kid. And it struck me that he wasn't actually in slavery to his dad. He wasn't stuck to the farm. His dad wasn't keeping him there. He, you know, the son was there. He was doing what he was doing out of a misinterpreted, misunderstood, twisted sense of duty and not out of love. So if you think about it, both sons, to a certain extent, had rejected the love of their father. And something for us to think about, because we often look at the young fella and say, oh, well, he got what was coming to him. And many people, when they read that gospel and they put themselves into it, would have the sympathy for the older boy. But one thing that struck me about it was that whole point. He was as much in slavery and, and, and away and cut off from his father's love, despite the fact he had stayed at home working on the farm with his dad. And for me, that poses a challenge to us. Very much so, reflecting on this Sunday's gospel and something which people might think about for coming days. It's very easy for us to point at the younger sons that have gone away from the faith. It's very easy to say, oh, they don't go to mass. They don't say their prayers. I don't know how you know that is beyond me. They don't do this. They don't do that, whatever the case might be. It's very easy for us to say, well, that's the younger son and they need to come back to Holy Mother Church. But there's the other side of it. There's those of us that might still be inside the door and we might still be a little superior, shall we say. We might say, oh, we're doing this out of our sense of duty. And this is how it's always been. And this is how it always shall be, a secularum, a secularum. And to ask ourselves, but are we doing it out of love? That is the question. Are we doing it out of love? One of the things, John, we often say on Lexio each, when we're trying to do this Lexio each week and we're trying to encourage people to read and reflect on the gospel is we say, particularly for the parables, put yourself into the story. It's almost like using uh, divine imagination, if you like, to ask yourselves, where are you in the story? Which of the boys are you? Which of the children are you? And asking ourselves, are we open to that unconditional love and mercy from the prodigal father? You know, from the point of view of the younger lad, 
he was watching for him and ran to greet him and took him back, no conditions. It was an interesting point someone raised during the week. He put a robe on him, a ring on him, and shoes on him. The robe was a sign of honor. The ring was a sign of authority. And the shoes were a sign that he was no longer a slave. You know, and something that's given to each of us in many respects. But then are we the older lad doing what we have to do because we feel we must? You know, and at the same time, though, feeling slightly put upon because we're doing it. And it mightn't just necessarily be in the sphere of religious practice or faith or things like that. It's asking ourselves why we do things the way we do it in the world. But also, I suppose, John, the other side of it is God returns those who are lost to the community regardless of obstacles that might be put in their way, right? So it's a sense of radical hospitality. And no matter how far one wanders from home, God still loves us. He still waits for us and is calling us back with open arms. You know, it's wondering, you know, when you look at the older boy, there's nothing stopping him joining the party except his people. But we don't know what he does, because obviously we don't know how the story ends. But rather, he leaves it up to us to continue. Luke leaves the narrative to us to continue. And we have nothing to lose in welcoming home the lost. Forgiveness is a decision, but it's not always easy and can bring up difficult and different, different emotions. So basically, we're asked, I suppose, to enter into that huge forgiveness which God is extending. Shane, thanks. Thank you very much, Neil, for that. Lovely. Yeah, like Shane, I, I was at Lecture Dubina with Father Frank Dewick and, um, during the week. And Father Frank, uh, he, he led us into reflecting and inviting us to, to find our story within the story of the gospel this week. And we've all been in that place where we've been doing our own thing taking what is legally ours, as the young fellow did, used it foolishly only to come to that place where we had nothing left. Maybe we had no money left. Maybe we lost all our relationships. We lost all the opportunities that we even had in life. We then realise we have to face reality and admit to ourselves we've taken the wrong path. We, only then can we restart our lives by accepting our need to reach out to those who can help and guide us, that's, that's a little bit like we don't like to do sometimes because of our ego. But in today's gospel, we read the young, uh, the young fellow. He came to his senses when he says, I'll leave this place where I am and I'll go back to my father. For I have sinned against heaven and against you. And that's a, that's a beautiful expression really to have, you know, that I've, I'm going to leave this place where I am now. I, I shouldn't be here in the first place after all. Uh, all the help that I was given growing up and so on and so forth and look what I've done now because I wanted my own stuff. But all of us have been in that position where we've realised that we've sinned and we need, of, we need to do something about it. And the beauty of our faith is that we can leave this place of sin and go to confession or reconciliation is what I'd prefer to call it. Tell our story to God through the priest and with the resolve to change our ways 
and become more like the person that God created us to be and of course be reconciled with God as well. So just like we heard in the gospel today, the Father is always looking out to meet us. And what a what a wonderful what a wonderful thought that is that the Father's always looking out for us. This season of Lent reminds us of the invitation we have to leave this place of sin where we are and return to that beautiful relationship with God our Creator. So that about brings us to the end of our, our podcast today. Thanks again, Shane, for that sh- sharing those uh, those reflections with us, both on the gospel and also on um, on Ukraine and on the on the Ukrainian Catholics, and uh, in, inviting us again, maybe to re- to reflect again on what we've been given and share what we've been given with those, and that might be materially, but it'll also be spiritually, especially spiritually. I say these days, offer whatever prayer we can for those who might need or do need the same as ourselves we need the mercy of God we might finish off now with our final uh, final piece of music on the podcast today and this one um, actually, I don't know when I played this last I'm not sure if I played it last year but it's it's by Michael Porrier and it's entitled The Lenten Song so for, from myself and Shane thanks again for joining us and please join us again next week listen back to this on Come and See Inspirations just google Come and See Inspirations and you'll find us there so until then Bye now. For these forty days and forty nights, will you walk the path of sacrifice? For these forty days. Yeah.
Days. 